0: Love Talk Radio Yeah
1: Mic check Mic check One, two One, two One, two For you Yeah uh-huh. You know I'm saying? Right up that biblical biblical theology theology study the person of God attributes God's word is like a breeze in the tropics And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit He's the king, the priest, and the prophet So please watch as we proceed with the topic And that's biblical theology That phrase alone, they give some people allergies They say it's not practical enough Just give me Jesus, that will be enough That seems plausible and logical Nobody wants to be all cold and theological But being a theologian's not optional Cause when you talk about Christ You're saying something doctrinal Either it accurately portrays His majesty Or it's a travesty Or worse, blasphemy You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical, we gotta see. The importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts? He finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation, creation To man's fall To redemption To consummation yeah. His designs and structure Each time will flush What mind can instruct The divine conductor His worthiness sits Enthroned oh, in the heavens Sturdy and fixed to see the importance of biblical theology yeah. the lord has not decided to keep us guessing you, lord. he gave us the word providing us correction in, in the spirit, spirit for guidance and direction Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflection. So we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mince If our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep, theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless, and we'll experience true peace. With our death, because we we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. Yeah. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is
2: given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. All right, welcome to another edition of Theology Matters, a special edition of Theology Matters, uh, as we are uh, preparing to have a debate-slash-discussion. Uh, we've been having this in the works for quite a while, and uh, we're really, really looking forward to this uh, this time. Uh, the topic is uh, we're going to be looking at is Calvinism versus Arminianism, and... Because it's such a broad range um, to try and deal with, uh, we're specifically going to be looking at two points. We're going to be looking at uh, unconditional election and irresistible grace, unconditional election and irresistible grace. And uh, we're going to have uh, the, the person that is – and I'm sorry for rushing. We're just going to have to kind of jump into this. We do have a two full hours, but we've got it timed pretty much down to the T so um uh, wanna make sure we, we have uh, adequate time to do that. So uh let's go ahead and uh and let's bring our our guest first guest on. Nathan, are you there my friend? i uh, yes I am. It's good to be here, Devin. Good to have you back, man. Nate Nate Taylor has been on here a couple times, did the Infamous Stola scriptor that uh, definitely got a bunch of downloads and and got, got quite a bit of buzz on the internet. So he's uh, he's a good dude. He's um, got his Master's of Divinity from Westminster uh, Theological Seminary in California. I uh, recently got a Master's degree in philosophy from Talbot. So he's, a, he's one of them West Coast guys. Uh, he is a ruling elder and interim pastor at uh, Christ Church Irvine. Is that right? Yeah, Christ Church Presbyterian Irvine. Right. So he is going to be, uh, needless to say, representing the Calvinist view. And uh, for uh, the representing the Arminian view, uh, we've got our friend Jordan Fish on. Jordan, are you there? Uh, yes, Jordan, are you there?
0: A
3: physically demanding assignment. Hey, so you know a Hello. Try on the yeah. Let's See, I think we're
2: having some technical difficulties there. Jordan, can you hear me? Okay, maybe not. Um, let me do this. I'm wondering if there was i I'm wondering if there was a issue with the time. I'm wondering if he. Um he did not get the right time correct uh, Let me see I, I think I can actually call him from the show So let's see if we can Do this here Gotta love Gotta love live Live radio right uh, <laughs> Right Nate <Nick? laughs> It
4: happens the best of us right
2: <laughs> Yes it definitely does Okay let's see this is, this is going to be a, a good discussion though. If we can if we can get it to to work here, I'm I'm gonna dial him right now.
4: Many are call if you were chosen.
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try this again here. Answering here. Let me let me do this. Let me let me um, let me play a commercial real quick, and let me try and uh, see if we can get get back with him. Let's we'll see if we can find a uh, few commercials here. Uh,
5: Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's Flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of Earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The Flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the Flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the Earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God.
1: To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com.
3: The fact that this is a narrow gate requires repentance. It requires leaving your baggage behind. It requires leaving behind the love of sin and the love of the world and love of self. As Jesus said, if any man shall come after me, he must deny himself and take up a cross and follow after me. There is no way to come through this narrow gate except you strip down and strip away all self-sufficiency and all self-righteousness and you humble yourself and you come as a little child into the kingdom of heaven and it is a narrow gate whereby you can only come one at a time. You can't come in a group. You're going to have to peel off from the group. You're going to have to break from the pack. You're going to have to break even from your family and come one at a time to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is calling everyone under the sound of His invitation to leave where they are and to leave what they are and to come immediately to Him and to enter through the narrow gate. You need to know that the gospel is a command. And you will either live in obedience or disobedience to this Christ who is calling you to enter through the narrow gate and to fail to respond to this gospel is to commit the greatest sin under heaven. It is to trample underfoot the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is to insult the Spirit of grace who would be convicting to say no to the gospel of Christ is to commit the greatest sin
6: Why do you refuse to come to him that you might have life? It's not the signs and wonders in this here chapter of John. Jesus had just done a bunch of signs and wonders and people didn't believe him. Why? Because Jesus says the scriptures that you read, they testify about me. And Jesus claims were too hard for people. Jesus claims basically, in essence, were you think you can work your way there, you can't you've sinned, you deserve God's wrath, you can't dig your way out of your hole. But I am God, I will live a perfect life and die for you, taking the wrath of the Father upon myself. Now you must repent and put your trust in me. The people then, they hated that message, and people today, they hate that message. And it's a shame, because the option is, You can just work like crazy to try to get to heaven. Knock yourself out, and you know in your heart of hearts that little conscience that tells you, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in big trouble here. I am not doing enough. Besides, even if I do a bunch, how will I ever make up for these sins? You can't. But Jesus did. And this day, He promises you life. Why wouldn't you run to Him? Why wouldn't you flee to Him? Most likely it's your pride or love of sin, or you think you're too dirty to be forgiven. He promises, come unto him in repentance and faith. He will not greet you with a scowl, but with love and forgiveness.
0: Please welcome Donnie
4: McClurkin and Yolanda Adams.
1: We've come to so much as people. And we've always had sisters and brothers like Randell Robinson to remind us that we're strong and resilient.
0: We fall down, but do we, we
1: fall But we get up, we fall down. But we get up, watch. For a saint is just a sinner who fell down. But we didn't stay there. And God, uh, help me stay. We fall down. up. When we get back up. We fall down We fall down we from heaven Get back, we we back we fall up. down Yes, we but do we, we rise back up again the
2: All right, uh, I did uh, back here, Devin. Did get a hold of uh, of Jordan. He should be hopefully calling in any time. I might have got uh, the time zones messed up, which which certainly does happen. And uh, hopefully we will be able to proceed with the discussion. Sorry about that, guys. Sometimes when you're doing you're doing radio, sometimes things can get uh, a little confusing, and time zones can 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 get messed up. And uh, I think uh, he says he, he had had the wrong number, so uh, hopefully he'll he'll call in, and uh, we'll be able to get this discussion going. Uh, in fact, there he is now, Jordan. Are you there? Hey, yes, I am, sir. Hey, man, how's it going? It's going well. Scott what can next? I do
7: for you?
2: Uh, well, it's uh, ready to do this debate. Are you are you ready? Is it going now? Uh, yeah, this, uh, you might have got the time zone messed up. It was uh, starting at 6 Eastern, yes. So oh, we're actually live, live on the air right now. <laughs> uh, good deal. Sorry about that. That's uh, all right, man. I was I was just saying, I know sometimes the time zones get messed up. But um, are you ready to go? Yeah, let
0: me
7: just
2: grab a note that I don't have let me kind of... Introduce you here. Uh, I know you uh you're gonna be kind of representing the uh the Armenian um the Arminian view. And uh we're gonna be looking, I was telling people specifically at uh, unconditional election and irresistible grace. And uh if correct me if I'm wrong, but you're actually a student of philosophy at uh, UNLV in Las Vegas, is that correct? Correct. I just got my BA. Wonderful. That's uh, that's good. Any anything else you you want us to know about you?
7: Uh, nothing in particular. I'm just uh, try, trying to understand what the Bible says
2: about rather important doctrine. Right. Let me let me introduce you guys. Nate, uh, this Jordan is is on the line, and and uh, can you hear us okay? Yes, I can. It's uh, good to meet you, Jordan
0: well, good to meet you too, sir.
4: Indeed, I look forward to a, a fun and
2: engaging discussion. Let's do this. Uh, I've kind of got the format written out. I uh, thought what we could do uh, with we've lost about 20 minutes uh, just with the confusion with the time, um, but let's just let's just do this. We'll we'll go ahead and uh, give you guys each a 10-minute opening uh, just to kind of lay out the issues, and then from there. Uh we'll we'll let you guys each do a fifteen minute cross examination, which will probably bring us right to about the seven o'clock hour. And then for the second hour, um we'll have you guys prepare three questions or so for each other, and uh you guys can kinda of go back and forth. Uh and then we'll we'll take about ten minutes or so. Uh, if we need longer we can do longer just to kind of discuss the um discuss the your guys' questions with each other. So, with that being said, um, let me see and uh, get my get my uh, top ta- my uh, little stopwatch here uh, going. Uh, Nate, did you want to go first? Yeah, I'll, I'll knock it out first. Okay, Tell me. Let's see. And Jordan, Tell uh, me, uh... Is that go ahead.
4: Yeah. So yep. just tell me when the when the time starts, and I'll uh, I'll start firing firing away here.
2: Okay. All right, Jordan, you good with that?
7: Yeah, you can go right here.
2: All right. Uh, during this time, I'll go ahead and uh, kind of put you on hold, uh, okay. and that way that way you guys can both kind of be inter- uninterrupted. And yeah. all right, Nate, go right ahead.
4: All right. Well, thank you so much, Devin, for having me on the show. Uh, And as uh, you said, this is an in-house debate, so I would like to thank Jordan as my uh, brother in Christ for his willingness to debate me on this topic and so forth. So let me uh, first define my terms. I hold the classic Calvinistic position, which is best expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I believe that free will is compatible with predestination. I believe that irresistible grace and unconditional election are reasonable and are not philosophically irrational. I believe the nature of this debate can be conclusively resolved by the scriptures. So, to the scriptures, I will go. The thesis I am defending is that irresistible grace and unconditional election are taught in the Bible. Unconditional election is the position that, from all eternity, God chose and predestined a large mass of humanity to be saved on the basis of God's greater purpose. God electing these individuals to be saved from all eternity is not conditioned on anything these individuals will do. And this is why it's called, after all, unconditional election. It's not conditioned on anything pertaining to the creature. God does not look down into the future to see who will believe in him only, to then choose them on that basis. The reason for choosing that person is for God's glory and the greater good, so that no one can ever boast in their salvation, but so that one can only boast in God and God alone. Irresistible grace is a position that when God calls you out of unbelief by his grace through the Holy Spirit, you cannot re- resist it at all. It is, not just that the, it, it is not just the position that no one in fact resists God's grace. Rather, that everyone lacks the ability to resist God's grace. God causally determines you to be regenerated by his Holy Spirit so that you respond in faith. And God's irresistible grace is often called regeneration in theology, which is by the Holy Spirit. And this occurs logically prior to faith. And regeneration sufficiently brings about faith in the believer's heart. This is a grace that is truly amazing because it brings us from death to life. And it never fails. So the first text, which both seem to clearly teach both unconditional election and irresistible grace, is Romans 9, verses 10 to 19, which reads, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of words, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but God alone who has mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Or what is molded molded, say to its molder Why have you made me like this You see these verses seem pretty straightforward, and it does Seem that the Calvinist viewpoint has the Best explanation of verses 18 through 19 which is So then he has mercy on whomever He wills and he hardens Whomever he wills you will Say to me then why does he Still find fault for who Can resist his will So If Paul were not teaching calvinism then there would not be a plausible way to explain these verses and the hypothetical reaction that paul gives them after all when you present someone with unconditional election and irresistible grace this is just the sort of reaction you get it goes a bit something like this hey if you can't resist god's will how can god hold you responsible how can he punish you It does not seem like an Arminian perspective can explain this text very well in light of these considerations. The second text supporting irresistible grace is John 6.44, which reads, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In this text, all that are drawn are raised up in salvation with their glorious resurrection bodies. There is no general sense in which God draws all people Highest prevenient grace here Because if all were drawn Then everybody would be saved Which would be universalism And we all agree here That uh, universalism is mistaken In short All who are drawn are saved They're raised up So this text seems to rule out The Arminians' perspective on prevenient grace Furthermore furthermore, The word draw used here Is a Greek word And this Greek word is predominantly used In the New Testament as dragging, John 12.32 has this meaning, John 18.20, Acts 16.19, Acts 21.30, and James uh, 2.6 as well. If Jordan wants to question me later on John 12.32, you can feel free to do that. It is used twice in John's gospel for dragging a net of dead fish in John twenty one six and John 21.11. Indeed, there is no clear instance in in all the New Testament that suggests that heluku means anything else but drag. The text then would be rendered in light of this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Lastly, this text has to be teaching irresistible grace because John in the very same discourse says that the reason why people do not believe in Him is because they are not granted to believe by the Father. John six sixty four through sixty five says, "But there are some of you who do not believe." And He said, "This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted him by the Father." These verses show us that the explanation as to why people are unbelievers is because God does not grant it to them to believe, and believers are granted by the Father to believe. It is hard to see how irresistible grace could be missed here. Another argument I would like to look at comes from 1 John five one, renders, everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, this text is teaching that in order to believe, we have to be born again. The word here for born is genao. And in this text, this word is uh, a perfect passive participle, which indicates a completed action. This means that at any instance you believe, this means that you have been already born again. It is interesting to note that the consistent language of regeneration in scripture suggests irresistible causal determination. Regeneration described here is being born again, but no one ever has or will have A libertarian choice about whether they are born or not. So the best explanation of this language is that God irresistibly determines you to be saved. Lastly, the fallen state of an unbeliever implies irresistible grace. As Romans 8 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those in the flesh here are unbelievers, and they can't please God, but have faith in Jesus would be pleasing to God, of course. So unbelievers cannot have faith in Jesus. In addition, looking at uh, Jeremiah thirteen twenty-three, it says, confirm this point more, says, can uh, the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. According to this text, if you are an unbeliever who is evil, then to do good is akin to changing your skin color or as a leopard having the ability to change his spots. The Ethiopian lacks the ability to change his skin color, and the leopard lacks the ability to change his spots. Then so, too, unbelievers lack the ability then to do good, and obviously having faith in Jesus is good. These are clearly things that are out of one's ability to change, and so the unbeliever needs God to change their spots and to become a believer in Christ. This is why their hearts have to be open like Lydia in Acts 16:14. And that concludes my opening statement. Thank you.
2: All right. Thanks, Nathan. I appreciate that. Yeah. And we'll go ahead and go to uh, Jordan. Um, are you ready for your 10-minute opening, Jordan? Uh, Yeah. I'm sorry? I'm
7: sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm just... I'm just saying that with the time, I got kind of caught off guard, so I don't have all my stuff with me here. But uh, I've okay. got a good good idea what what I'm going to say.
2: Okay. Okay. Um, whenever you're ready, just go ahead and uh, you know, I mean, if you if you don't want to use your whole ten minutes, uh, you certainly don't have to. Uh, whatever whatever you like. Okay. Thank you very much. Tell me when. Okay. Ready. And you can uh, begin now. Okay, well, thank you for inviting me
7: onto the show. Uh, I'd just like to agree with Nathan that this is an in-house debate among Christians, that this is not the kind of debate that is uh, dealing with the essentials of salvation. This is much more dealing with the the hypothetical and theoretical. Um, So in that respect, let me just start by giving a presentation of what the Arminian-Molinist position is, and then when we get into the, the cross-examinations, we'll go through uh, the details. All right, so the first thing that needs to be recognized is that it is n- not an objection against God's sovereignty. Uh, in the same way, the the Calvinists will agree that uh, the view known as hyper-Calvinism, which teaches an extreme form of God's sovereignty, that God has this exhaustive, hard determinism over everything that happens. So like in in Corinthians where it says that God is at work within us, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, the the hypercommonists will take that same kind of active inworking and apply it to God actively inworking sin, sinful desires, into the hearts of the creature. And so they will say that God isn't sovereign, God is not sovereign unless he's that sovereign, that he's doing those kinds of things. And the Calvinists say, no, that's wrong, that's attributing to God, uh, author of sin, that's a heretical doctrine, so we need to step back a bit. Likewise, the Armenian comes along and says that the Calvinist view, view which is still a form of determinism, as Nathan said, that God is causally determining, but it's not in the same active, uh, inward sense that the, the hyper-Calvinist uses. But nonetheless, the Armenian will say that this is still attributing too much to God, and it's not escaping the conclusion that God is the author of sin. So the Armenian is taking the what's known as the, the libertarian view of free will because he believes that the Calvinist view does not escape the result of God being the author of sin. So the view here in mind is not uh, an attempt to hate God's sovereignty or exalt man above his place where God has put him, but it is Holy for the glory of God and his sovereignty And rightly understanding God's providence And how he goes about predestinating And electing and so on So The Moes, or the, uh, the Arminian comes along and he says that, that God deals With predestination and Election and his providence With man's free will So man is free In the sense that he has the ability To both Obey God's commands and to refrain from obeying God's commands. In the case when God is supplying him with that divine grace, which is necessary and sufficient for man to be able to obey God. So God is necessary. His divine grace is necessary for man to be capable of doing anything that is truly good and pleasing to God. So this is the the doctrine of prevenient grace, prevenient in the sense that the grace comes before man's response, man's uh, cooperative response. Furthermore, the Molinist addition to this, arguably Arminius was Molinist, but I'm not going to get into that, deals with how predestination is related to this kind of freedom. So it it goes like this. God has is typically understood as having two kinds of knowledge, his natural knowledge and his free knowledge. God's natural knowledge is all of his knowledge of necessary truths and all possible states of affairs, everything that could be the case, everything that could be the case. God's free knowledge is all of his knowledge based on anything which he determines to be the case. So these these are truths that are dependent upon his will and their contingents. So they do not have to be this way, but God makes them this way. The molus position adds one more type of knowledge. It's called middle knowledge because it's, it's between that natural knowledge, which is all the necessary truths, and the free knowledge, which is all the contingent dependent upon God's will truths. So the middle knowledge is God's knowledge of all creaturely counterfactuals, which is a fancy way of saying that God knows exactly what any given creature would do that possesses free will, the libertarian sense of free will, if they were placed in any possible state of affair. So that if someone is in some circumstance, God knows what they would do. Not just what they could do, but what they would actually do in that state of affairs. So in that way, God has knowledge, exhaustive knowledge, of exactly what events will occur in any given situation that he could create. So like in in uh, Samuel, the book of Samuel, uh, the prophet Nathan comes along and rebukes David. So David had uh, seen Bathsheba on the top of the roof, coveted her, took her, uh, and then plotted to kill her husband, uh, Uriah. So he arranges all these circumstances And then along comes Nathan rebukes David and says, you have murdered Uriah. By your own hand, you've done it. So he's
0: he's using a bit of
7: analogy here to say that David is being directly held responsible for the consequences by arranging the state of affairs that brought about his intentions. In the same way the, the Armenian molestation holds the same view of sovereignty that God has. God is perfectly sovereign over everything that comes to pass, including every good and evil action and free will of man, by arranging the circumstances that infallibly bring around these consequences that he wants to happen. So, I'm not going to go into any particular passages to show that the Bible teaches that There is some kind of human freedom I'm going to leave it to Nathan to pick out those And then I'll just fight on his turf Wherever he wants to go with those Um, But I will Once we get into the the cross-examination Because I don't have enough time to finish the rest I will bring up A more thorough Philosophical objection as Nathan said That uh, irresistible grace And the the combination of unconditional election Are philosophically sound They're, They're reasonable and I'm going to attempt to undermine that and show that if we tackle this debate on a systematic level, when, we say, when I just take a charitable position and I say, okay, all of the biblical verses support Calvinism. So just what does this verse say? This verse says un- God does unconditional election. This verse says it's by irresistible grace. This verse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if we just take them all at face value and just say, okay, the Calvinist is right, then we come to certain principles and doctrines. Now when we take those in whole and we try to take an internal consistency test to see whether the, the views themselves are contradictory to one another or if they lead to any further uh, consequences that are heretical such as God being malicious or God being the author of sin, then whatever is causing those contradictions or those heretical doctrines we can say that is false. We know it's Absolutely false, with no with no shadow of a doubt. And so there's no re- there's no problem with a ambiguous text or interpretations or all these things. We can say it's 100% certain this is wrong. So that's how I'm going to be tackling versus debate when we get into the crossfire. And I'll end my introduction with that. Thank you.
2: All right. Thanks, Jordan. I appreciate that. Uh, if you guys are just joining us, we are having a uh, debate. On Calvinism versus Arminianism we're specifically looking at unconditional election and irresistible grace. I uh, only have two hours, so don't really have a whole lot of time to hit every point um, but Jordan just finished his uh ten minute opening, so now will be a time uh fifteen minute cross examination and during the cross examination, this is a time uh for uh, the person to uh, ask questions, the person who is being asked the questions uh, is not really supposed to come back and, and ask questions, but just supposed to answer, uh, it's up to you guys there's a, a part where you want to waive that and let the let the person respond or ask questions, clarification, uh, that's, that's totally up to you guys. So who would like to go first in the cross-examination?
4: Well, since he just made his opening statement, uh, I wouldn't mind going first unless uh, Jordan objects. If Jordan wants to go first, he can do that.
7: I will let you go first if you think I've given you enough to counter on or if you have some other information to counter on. Otherwise I'll go off what you said and then maybe you can work off that.
4: All right, that sounds that sounds fine. I'll just ask you questions in my opening statement and ask you some philosophical questions after we get to the physical text. Okay? Okay, so go ahead and open that. Yes. All right. Well so I'll uh, start my fifteen minutes off. I'll be asking questions and afterwards you'll ask me questions. All right, Jordan. Um how do you explain this uh, verse in Romans Given your view that we can resist God's will I'm going to quote it for you here Romans nine, eighteen 18-19 So then he has mercy on whomever he wills And he hardens whomever he wills You will say to me then Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will How do you, and from your perspective How do you explain that text In a lot of your viewpoint Wonderful text, thank you Okay, Romans
7: 9 Let me look over there Alright, the thing that needs to be recognized is that the the will that's being talked about here is not giving an explicit understanding of the nature of human freedom. It's talking more along the terms of uh, desires or in Romans 3 where it says that, uh, what, all has sinned, all has fallen short of the God. There are none who does good. There's none who follows after God. But that's that's actually a, a hyperbole. It's, a, it's an exaggeration. The fact of the matter is that what's really being stated there is that no one pursues God apart from Christ working in him those desires. In the same way here in Romans 9, what's, being, what's not being said here, what is not being said is that those who will to pursue righteousness by faith are being rejected by God. Rather, the, the whole uh, parable here, it is a parable referring to Jacob and Esau, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. To the same way in Galatians chapter 3 and 4, Paul uses the exact same analogy, where these are standing in for uh, Jacob and Isaac would be the children of faith, and Isaac and Ishmael and Isaac, sorry, would be standing for the children of the flesh or the children who are pursuing, pursuing righteousness by works.
4: Oh, uh, so Jordan, he, J- Jordan. Yeah. I, I, I'm yeah. not. I, I was just curious in um, not your whole view, Romans 9, but just how your view explains this particular text. H- how okay, so like how does it, so it? Like, it function? I,
7: I mean, sentence conclusion. Yeah. Sentence conclusion. Uh, God has chosen sovereignly to have mercy upon those who believe, not upon anyone who seeks to uh, pursue righteousness or be justified apart from that faith.
4: Okay, so, so so this is this is saying, then, if I understand what, what you hold, that um, this is objecting to God having mercy on those who have faith? No, it is
7: not objecting to God having mercy upon those who have faith, but it's explicitly saying that the, the willing and the working there is referring to those who pursue righteousness by work, apart from faith, as though it were not by faith.
4: Oh, okay, okay. Um, Now let me ask you a question Would you say that um, what's repugnant about the Calvinist position Is that Or uh, counterintuitive I'll use a more philosophical neutral term there Would you say what's uh, counterintuitive About the uh, Calvinist position Is that God um, God causally determines you And you can't resist it And that he punishes you for that I will say yes (laughs) Okay I mean that's that's all I wanted to know I'll, okay. I'm going to the next question now. Uh, how do you deal with a Greek text indicating that being born again uh, precedes faith in First uh, John 5 1 by the use of yanao as the perfect form indicates?
7: I would say it's. Giving a, a statement of what is presently true Those who are believing Jesus is the Christ Are those who are born again And those who ever loved the Father uh, yeah, Etc So it's those who are presently believing God Are the children of God Those who are born again
4: Okay yeah it was The perfect form indicates completed action Which would say that um, basically it's, once, once you have faith It's already logically complete That you have uh, been born again So in light of the uh, Greek text How would you understand that? it's a matter of logical
7: priority not temporal priority to be okay. yeah so it's for my view it would be that the logical priority is that faith precedes justification but faith does not re- precede prevenient grace which includes a kind of regeneration it's just not that regeneration unto salvation
4: so if i understand but what you're saying then um are you are you saying just i'm sorry just i understand directly what you're saying um would you would you hold then that being born again uh, precedes uh, faith, as the passage indicates, by the perfect uh, tent, uh, form of the Greek word. I would say that's not what the text is saying. So yes. Oh, okay. So you you disagree that a perfect here means a completed action? Well, I'm not saying it's not a completed action. I'm just saying it's it's not saying that the
7: action logically precedes the other.
4: Okay. Oh, I thought you said the opposite. The logically that that uh, the perfect because it's a completed completed action. Um, indicating you have faith. So in order in order to have faith, um, there has to be a, a completion, namely being born again. I thought you did say that that one logically preceded the other, namely it was a born again. So I misunderstood your answer to that. So you would you would not say the perfect indicates that here. Is that right? It's it's a little more uh, complex
7: than that. It's the moment someone has faith, that is the exact same moment that they're born again. I agree but with that. the way that's in right. which they got to that condition of being in faith was not via a salvific regeneration. Put it that way.
4: Okay, so so, so the perfect form the, the perfect form here then would at which would suggest the completed. So it says, if you have, if they all. I mean, I'll read the read the text. Let's um, up here a little bit more. Okay, so everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ has been born of God. So if yes. you believe you you've already been born of God according to the to the perfect ten, to the perfect form there. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, those exactly. who are born of God are those who are believing. Right. The the text is in has been born. It's it's already it's already completed. Once someone has faith, it's already been completed that they've been born of God is a thought in the text and, and indicated by the uh the Greek form.
7: Oh, then I'll yes, I'll agree with that because like I'm saying, the moment someone has faith, that is the exact same moment when they are completely born again.
4: Okay. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll I'll go on with my question then. Okay, a different one. So could you give me a passage in the Bible that says um that God's election is on the basis of uh foreseen faith?
7: Uh foreseen faith? Well I would say it's every single one that you would say that it's foreseen uh unconditional election. <laughs> Uh, oh okay
4: you want to so what so actually this te- text actually says uh that it's on the basis of foreseen faith Uh yes, there are
7: instances in which it says that uh it is plus let me clarify something. The foreseen there is more allegorical. It's not that God looks into the future and then based on future events there's a form of backward causation, then he determines what he's gonna do. It's not that kind of foreseen. It's that God has this Middle knowledge, where he propositional. No, I I, 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 I
4: understand the position Robert okay. said. I'm just saying, where can you find in the text that God's election is on the basis of foreseen faith, or you can you can say you know counterfactuals, whichever you like, but on the basis of any sort of like uh, creaturely libertarian free decision.
7: Uh, every verse that that uh, says that God has predestined those to be in Christ, that God has a. Uh, Predestined according to his calling All of those are implying Libertarian freedom okay. I don't think there's any explicit Text that says hey this is the kind of freedom That man has but it's just a state gotcha. God predestines and then we work from there
4: Well you're a philosopher So I'll get to the philosophical stuff Okay, okay. Um, um, do, do you believe that uh, Do you believe in the counterfactual to creaturely Freedom and uh, Do you believe that they were uh, created by God the counterfactuals
7: were not created by God. They are uh, necessary and involuntary in the same way that God's natural knowledge is. I'm sorry, uh, they're contingent
4: yeah, and independent okay, of we God's go.
7: will. Yeah. So the, the okay, middle, uh, middle uh, knowledge. Do you, you, you think
4: they're non-physical?
7: Uh, they would be non-physical. Yes.
4: Perfect. Okay. How do you reconcile that with Colossians 1:16, uh, which says, "For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, which non-physical facts, are invisible, where thrones, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or all things were created through him and for him. How would you make sense out of that? So it says here that all invisible things were created, um, but yet you're saying that there is an invisible counterfactual, which is such that it eternally exists? hmm
5: Okay, uh, well, how do God you make
4: sense out of that passage then? I'm just curious. Is God invisible? And did God create uh, yes. himself? Well, you're not God, supposed to be asking questions. You, you know, yes. It's a my, my question and answer. So um I so your your response then is, well, God's invisible but it's saying that God created all all all, all things, so it would be excluding yes. God from that the category. All,
7: the all with as the typical debate goes, when the passages start referring to all, there is a c there's there has got to be some sort of context where there's a delimiter there. The all does not necessarily have to apply to every single possible thing that we can think of. For example, it does not apply to God here, who is invisible. And it wouldn't apply to mathematical truths, which God does not create those. They simply are the way they are. And so it would be the same with these creaturely counterfactuals.
4: I understand. I understand. Assuming one's a Platonist, certainly. Uh, Okay, well, I'm going to ask you another philosophical question then. Does anything explain why the counterfactuals of creaturely freedom exist and why they are the way that they are? In other words, why are they one way rather than another, you know? When Peter chooses to pick an na- eat an apple rather than a grape, uh, or chooses to do this rather than that, why are the counterfactuals the way they are? What explains um, the way the counterfactuals are and why they exist? What's the explanation of them?
7: If I'm understanding you, you're referring to the objection or the, the grounding objection.
4: Um, well, I'm, I'm asking for an explanation of them. Yes.
7: Okay. Well. Uh in philosophical jargon, that's known as the the grounding objection. And that is actually a very good objection. That one's not been fully worked out yet. Uh, The last I have heard, it might be a few years old, maybe there's been some new information I haven't come up on yet. It's still working in the pipeline here. But uh, Thomas Flint had a book on divine providence. It's an extremely technical book, uh, not recommended for the faint at heart. But he gives a very thorough analysis of the, the grounding objection. So what are the the truth makers, what are the things that make it true that, uh, for example, Peter would deny Christ three times rather than not? even if So if we say that he could have refrained from denying Christ three times, maybe he hadn't done it two times or four times, whatever. So what is it that makes it true of Peter
4: that he does this rather than something else? Uh, there's... I, I, I'm attempt, just asking for, for, yeah. for an explanation. If there's no explanation, you can say that. We can move on. Or you can say you don't need explanations of all things. And wh- whatever whatever works, just uh, okay, um, I, I'd like to know. The objection itself when we try to, to formalize it and to work it out is
7: incoherent. So it's, it's not even clear what's being asked in the, the grounding objection about what it's like. Do, you, do these propositions even need truth makers? And then when we try to assume that there are such things, it's not clear what they are. So I I don't have a good oh, okay, answer. Okay,
4: okay, so, so then you're saying, is, is there an explanation of why they are the way they are?
7: Uh, I would say there is, we're just not aware of it yet.
4: Okay. Is, is, the, is the explanation have anything to do with the creature?
7: Uh, it
4: would be the creature, but it obviously wouldn't be an actualized creature. Right, because the creature doesn't exist, so you'd have right. to say that, that something to do with the creature which doesn't exist, so you have something that doesn't exist, which explains something that would be like an atheist saying God explains universe, but He doesn't exist. So that would be kind I, of the worry there. Not
7: e- not exactly, because we do the same thing with uh, with possible worlds talk, where I say it's possible that such and such, or I could have done such and such, when no such actual events are real or actual or, or so. It's, in that sense, well, it's I, the same. That,
4: that's a as you know, um in possible worlds, if something's necessary, it's necessary. I mean, if something is possible. It's necessarily possible, and if one's a, a conceptual, a divine conceptualist, they can ground that in the necessary thoughts of God and uh, abstract in the mind of God. So, but these are different; these are contingents. So, these are contingent things which are going to have an explanation. Whereas abstract that are necessary and possibility things that are possible, would in my view, I'm not a Platonist. I would be. I'm a divine conceptualist. I would ground mm-hmm. those in the very nature and mind of God. Um, so that would be my view. But anyways, uh, I better. Go on here and ask you a different question. Uh, how does anybody have control over the counterfactual to freedom when no one exists to a ground or explain them at all? Assuming the a theory of time, if you're a b theorist like Michael Ray, then of course uh, you know you can't explain them because they eternally exist. Human beings do. But assuming the a theory of time, how does anybody have control over the counterfactual to freedom when no one exists to ground them?
7: Well, I do take an a theory of time, but. The uh, one possible answer would be kind of a Molina, Molina's in his own is that uh, these unsubstantiated essences, which would become human beings once God actualized them, that it's just uh, you can kind of think of it as a kind of like a like running scenarios. If you if God were knowing in his natural knowledge that if he were to actualize this essence in this way, then this is. How its preferences would work, this is what it would like, this is what it would desire, and it would do those things voluntarily in the creaturely freedom uh, in a libertarian free way
4: sure, but so there would be a difference yeah. then on your view between me existing and my essence existing because presumably there are worlds where I don't exist which my essence exists um so um basically I don't exist still so i don't I don't sure. exist uh to to uh to have any choice over what these things are I don't exist To ground them I don't exist To explain them
2: And so on Is that is that accurate Or is that
4: inaccurate uh, take, uh, take
2: take 30 seconds uh, To answer that Jordan And then We'll switch And it'll be your 15 minutes for Nate
7: Okay I'll, I'll say there's a sense In which that's Kind of right But it's It's, uh, it's a mistake to say That it's, we're not there To make the choice Because you've got to remember That God is using His omniscient knowledge Of these essences These unsubstantiated essences He knows the, He he would know exactly what is true about them. So it's those unsubstantiated essences, at least in one possible explanation. I don't know if it's a good one. I'm still working through this part. I mean, no one's really figured it out yet. But it would be those essences that if they were actualized, this is what you would do. So it's, it's yeah, it's not easy to understand. But so that is a good
4: objection. Thank you, Jordan, for your time. Uh, it's your turn. Fifteen minutes to cut him up. Uh, Yes. Uh, Go. Okay. Uh, Go
7: ahead. Go. Okay. So going back to to Romans nine, uh, going back to the whom He has mercy on and whom He hardens, and the the whole and the willing and the running, could you please define what a works righteousness is? Something that is a works righteousness?
4: A work which is such that it contributes to one's uh, justification. Righteousness, they're standing before God So it would be a work of such a character that it would contribute To their justification or their right standing Before God, that means when I stand before God on the judgment day, a works righteous Would be one in which I would try to say, well God, my works, my action Has contributed to my right Standing before you, that would be someone who Would believe to works righteousness and someone That would be an example of a works righteousness uh, Theology
7: Okay, so you You got what I wanted you to say, you said that uh the act of faith or say the the using of human freedom to believe is itself a work contributing to justification is that's all you right
4: uh no it wouldn't be that it would it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a belief um being a work it would be a work it'd be an action uh paul said yeah the, thing the, was the act going.
7: to believe or the act of believing it's the act of believing the using of human freedom to will to believe kind of thing
4: wouldn't believe that's a work, so I, I don't know if I would say that. So I would distinguish between faith and works, as Paul does in uh, Galatians, uh, Galatians 3.
7: Okay, so correct me if I'm misunderstanding something. Uh, typically, when I hear Calvinists speaking of this, of these passages, they will say that anyone who favorably responds, or so in the in the resistible grace sense, in the Arminian sense of libertarian yes. freedom, that it is possible for man to resist. the the grace of God, so that it's not necessary or it's not um, causally determined for him to believe unto salvation. That's right. He'll say that because he could do otherwise and because there is some sense in which his justification is dependent upon his freely choosing to have faith or choosing to
4: cooperate with the grace of God, that that counts towards his justification. That's a meritorious act. I don't agree with that line. I would say that there is something about Arminians which, uh, you know, I would say that they would have something to boast about before God, but I wouldn't take that that's to say they have an explanation intrinsic to themselves as to why one person ends up in heaven and the other person, person ends up in hell, but I wouldn't call that uh, works righteousness. I would just call that a mistaken uh, – no, no offense to you, I'm just, being honest, just accurately no telling you my beliefs. It's just a mistaken no uh, view of theology, but I don't think that would – Amount any definition or attack that Paul is having in the scriptures themselves. So I don't think Paul, you know, addresses Armenian theology and says, "Oh, this is works righteousness here." Um, and uh, just lastly, uh, I don't think Ar- I don't think a consistent Arminianism can say that um, somebody can do other walks because of God's infallible foreknowledge. But that's something different. So,
7: okay. So could you clarify more what you mean by they have something to boast
4: in, but it's not meritorious? Well, there's something intrinsic to the person. That 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 says okay, there's something about my my sourcehood, which has made it, you know, if, as it says in First Corinthians First uh, Corinthians one, it says that you know you have this calling to God, you know, and then you, Christ is your righteousness, you know, and this sort of thing. It says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so, there on the Calvinist view, more consistent with this, I would say the Arminian would say no, you can't boast before God because you just receive a gift. You're just receiving a gift, and so. Although it is something intrinsic to do with you, it's just the mere act of reception, and as such, it doesn't count as meritorious. And I would say that's correct, um, but I would say the Arminian um, would be able to say, well, I avoided sinning and and not rejecting the the gift given to me. And so on that basis, there's something to boast about, namely the avoidance of sin. But the act of reception of faith on the Arminian view, I wouldn't say in and of itself, is meritorious.
2: my my own view on that. uh... You're probably going to have to repeat that again, Nate. Uh, uh, for whatever reason, uh, Jordan's call dropped, so no. I'm thinking he'll, pro- he'll probably call back in and, and in just a second. We'll stop the time.
4: Well, that literally, Devin, we <laughs> <Yeah,
2: laughs> you, that's, you, that's you, that's you right. can't win them all. Yeah, you just can't. Yeah, uh, we just, man, I can't seem to get past some of these. Yeah, this has this has been debate.
4: a a fun, a fun debate so far. It's very uh, interesting, you know, Jordan's
2: responses and these sorts of things. Uh, yeah, Jordan's a, I, Jordan's a sharp dude for sure. Yeah, uh, but you know, this is fun. an important discussion. You know, it's it's a it's an important discussion. Um, you know, it's I think sometimes people think well, it's you know, it's a non-essential, it's a non-essential, but. Not essential doesn't mean not important, you know, because it does, exactly, exactly. It does affect our, our view of God. Jordan just called back, so let me get him back. Okay, he's done. On, on, on.
0: <laughs> I, I dropped my phone,
7: okay, sorry.
2: Jordan. That's okay, man. We know uh, We know he dropped it. Um, you know, you know you Jordan, it, 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 it's just one of those days, Jordan. It's just one of those days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've had him, too. Nate, Nate, go ahead and repeat your response. I don't know. If, did, did you hear it? Did oh. you hear it, uh, Jordan? Right,
4: Right. well I, I would say that the Armenian viewpoint uh, With its view of reception of faith Is not meritorious But the avoiding of the sin of not receiving it That does seem uh, to be kind of a worry there With boasting and finding intrinsic value in yourself For avoiding uh, not receiving the gift of grace So that would be a worry But not the actual reception of faith itself On the Armenian view I would say is uh, necessarily meritorious but the fact of avoiding, you know, not sinning and rejecting the, the reception of the gift, which is by faith, on the Arminian viewpoint. And there's different Arminians that would differ on this. And there are certain Arminian uh, uh, later developed theologians I would say, have a more heretical viewpoints. Um, and there's more evangelical ones, which I would assume, like yourself, that don't hold those viewpoints about governmental view of the atonement. So, you know, I don't want to clump everybody all together here, so I'm trying to be fair. Okay, so, uh, so just to clarify, that's, what you're saying is that
7: your concern is not that the, the cooperative response to divine grace is meritorious, but that there's a sense that because man is capable in some sense of uh, resisting and therefore not being saved by divine grace, that
4: it's uh, some sort of fallibility that God could fail? Is that what's going on? Well, I mean, that would be something to do with more perfect being theology. I know James White always says that, you know, God can save... Uh, tries to say, but he fails. I mean, that would be. I would link that more with perfect being theology and God's greatness and control. Um, but that the, the uh, thought here would be something that I would say: the act of avoiding sinning when you receive the gift of grace. To say the avoid, you avoid resisting God's grace. You um, avoid not receiving the gift. Um, that that would worry me because all our, because you know when you have faith in Christ, you're avoiding at that point from sinning and rejecting Christ, and so. Whereas people that end up in hell, they uh, reject Christ and they don't receive the gift of grace. <laughs> um, so that would be the worry: is putting that sort of intrinsic basis in the creature. That would what would work me is in terms of boasting God and God's majesty and the greatness as the most perfect being. So That would be my concern primarily. Uh,
7: I'm not. Sure. I'm still not sure if I'm quite following
4: exactly where. I'm not. Reject- so let me let me answer your question directly. I don't think it's okay.
7: meritorious. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, mean, got, I got that part. But I'm, yeah. I'm just concerned why you think that man's ability, if he has such an ability, to resist the grace of God should be a problem. I'm, I'm still not quite following where you're going with that. Well,
4: I mean, I certainly have problems with it philosophically and uh, uh, theologically, but um, uh, I mean, we can go into those if you want. I mean, I don't know if you want me to go into that. Well, you I, I would mind it. More Go more about for it. it. Oh, yeah. Go for it. yeah well, go for it. Uh, okay. Well, I, I guess I would say that the uh, theological worry. With it is that these uh, these free decisions, God, uh, these libertarian uncaused free decisions, God has to use middle knowledge or look in the future, whether you're a simple foreknowledge guy like Dave Hunt, whatever. He has to look in the future. And so uh, his omniscience, the property of omniscience, the of omniscience of God, is dependent upon creatures. Now, creatures are lesser than God, um, obviously, and God is greater than creatures. And so God, for his property of omniscience, depends upon, um... These creatures which, with these creatures' free will decisions, which are lesser than himself, so God is dependent on his knowledge, his omniscience, on these uh, creatures' libertarian free decisions. And I can think of a greater being, namely, a being that doesn't depend upon lesser beings for his knowledge, but only depends upon the greatest, which is himself, for his knowledge. And so it just seems to me that uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of inconsistent with perfect being theology and also God's uh, sovereign control. If God was a perfect being, we'd expect him to control all things and to uh, manage reality in a certain way, and there wouldn't be things which lack uh, having his control. And so those sort of perfect being theology considerations, as, long as, as well as the scriptural things like John 6:44, 44, um, which says that no one can come to Jesus um, unless the Father draws him, and he will raise him up on the last day, but those sort of theological and philosophical considerations um, uh, it would be the the reason why I would be uncomfortable with the Arminian conception of the will.
7: Okay. Uh There is one thing I'll check you on. You said that it, the libertarian freedom is an uncaused free decision.
4: Uncaused Could cause, remover, you know, causation would say, yeah. Okay, in that sense, in the uncaused cause. So that it's a, it yeah, is a. Yeah, I was using it in a classical agent causation sense. I wasn't trying to be pejorative or anything like that.
0: Okay,
7: okay.
4: Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, no, that's that's
7: good. Uh, thank you for going through and clarifying that. Um, you brought up John 6:44 again, the draws him, and also yes. the the John 12. Now, yes, I noticed that the references you refer to to get the context or the intended meaning of draw in John 6 and 12, you refer to actions committed by persons against impersonal physical objects. Now, why do you think that that context of drawing or dragging impersonal physical objects is the same intended meaning for drawing person to person?
4: Oh, yeah, good question, good question, yes. So I, I would say that, um, that what's being stressed, what's true of non-physical, uh, I mean, sorry, non-physical, what am I saying? Physical objects, and what's true of God's work in regeneration, is that there's causal sufficiency involved, um, and I would say uh, At least at regeneration Most Calvinists are not compatibilistic When it comes to regeneration I would say you're not free to regenerate yourself um, So there's no sense of freedom Just like there's no sense of freedom With respect to um, You know uh, Impersonal physical objects um, I do hold that faith is um, A compatibilistically free operation In some sense But I don't hold that regeneration is So I would say that that is you know, a monergistic act that you are, you know, transformed, you're born, no one ever has or will have a choice about being born again, and you are a new creation, no one ever has or will have a choice about being a new creation, and so we lack any sort of freedom over that, and that's why I think that's used there in John
0: 6:44. Okay, so
7: here's, here's a possible alternative explanation, I'd like you to tell me what's wrong with it, okay? Okay, go ahead. Now, if I agree with you that regeneration is a monarchistic divine act of God, okay? But the completion of that act, which is given for the purpose of salvation, is resistible. So that the giving of the gift is a miraculous divine act of God. Man has no say in the matter of whether God does this or not. It's simply something that he does on whatever basis he determines. But God does not give it in a sense that it irresistibly affects the will. So that mm-hmm. the draw here would be more in the terms of like a Kittle's theological dictionary where it's a, an alluring, an enticement. There's no, um, there's no automatic compulsion to it. Uh, in the same sense, with if, I were, if I'm speaking to you now and I'm using my words to persuade you, my words are not irresistibly acting upon you, but there is a sense in which you are either receiving them or rejecting them. Why can't we say yeah, that that's right. that regeneration is monergistic but that it's comp that the work in which it carries out in the person is synergistic?
4: Okay, yes. I have two well, three worries with that actually. So I'll be Trinitarian and go with all three worries. <laughs> okay. um, the first worry is uh with Luco, that that actually is never used, and you can you can go to the John twelve, I'm sure if you're you're waiting to use that. So afterwards you can bring that up I'm sure. Um How doing with that, uh, what's that? Now I'm using it; as the
7: same, so I'm saying that they're saying the same
4: thing. Okay, that's fine. Haluco is used, I would say, to mean dragging. If you look at any uh, the majority usage in John's writings, and uh, if you look at the writings of the New Testament, the predominant usage of it is drag. And um, so I would say, on a on a on a that sort of lexical level, I would say that the probability is it's being used in that way because that's the predominant Johannine usage, and that's the predominant New Testament usage. Uh, secondly the the, the term no one is able so people lack the ability also uh, increases the chance probability of the gloss of heluco, meaning drag because um, you lack the ability to form an action that sort of thing. but probably last and most importantly, um all who are drawn are in fact raised um there's no interruption textually in john six forty four so if you're drawn you're raised in, in context in john forty and so, John uh, six forty 39 and so on, that is used for, you know, being raised up gloriously in salvation, something that the elect experience. And so in short, all who are dragged are raised. And so uh, that's why I would say that the Calvinist interpretation of this passage is more probable than the Arminian or the Molinist. And so for that reason, it's more rational to affirm Calvinism Calvinism on this basis.
7: Okay, I like that you said that it was more probable.
4: That's right, yes. Because
7: there is a sense in which you could be wrong you are making an inductive.
4: I'm a fallibilist, so yeah, I'm not saying I know this infallibly. I mean, you know, the military can throw invisible magic darts at me while I'm talking, you know, reading by it <laughs> and I can be mistaken. So I'm not a you know, I'm not saying anything weird like that. Okay, so I just wanted to to say for the, the people who are
7: listening that when we're interpreting these verses and we start trying to get down to the context of what these terms mean specifically, these very controversial theologically rich terms. There is no explicit explanation given by the authors themselves to tell us exactly how it's to play out. We're drawing
4: inferences
7: and in probabilistic arguments.
4: So I, I would, I would my, say that's true of yeah. I would say it's true of every text we interpret. Though it's always going to be probabilistic and, and yes. in a certain way. I don't I don't read any Bible passage infallibly, you know, because as you know, epistemologically, you can always be mistaken when you have sensory uh, experience. So. Correct. Correct. So yes, I just uh, want to point out that to, to your first,
7: to your first objection, that's what I would respond to. It's that's a fine, reasonable objection, but it still could be wrong. It's probabilistic. The uh, the second point you, I'm sorry,
4: remind me what the second point was. Okay. So the first one was about. The, uh, the the Greek word and its meaning The, the second one was it. about It being the most probable gloss there uh, The most probable meaning Because of the, the term no one is able Suggesting that people no apart able. from this drawing process Lack the ability to uh, And that those who are drawn are raised
0: up okay.
4: yeah. And, and end, the third raised. was of course the uh, Those who are drawn are raised up in salvation So there's no sense in which you can be drawn And not raised up according to John 6.44
7: Okay, so the the no one is able, is that saying that no one is able ever, or no one is able without the grace of God?
4: Well, it would be saying that no one is able to come to Christ um, without being drawn. So So, the drawing there
7: is is implying that no one can come to God unless God is doing something first.
4: uh, That's right, and those who does something first are raised up in the last day in salvation. So. Yeah, that's right. You okay, guys so, one yeah.
2: minute, one minute, one minute left for crossing uh, okay. exam. So I'll, I'll put those two and three together in one quick question. So if no one is
7: able unless God is doing something first, so that would be the prevenient grace for the Armenian. so that God... Mm-hmm. As a form of regeneration, he frees them from the the slavery to sin, so he gives them the ability to come to him. And then those who respond favorably and actually come to him, those are the ones who are drawn, and thus those are
4: the ones who are sealed and raised up on the last day. Is there anything wrong with that interpretation,
0: uh, other well, than the, the uh, probably yeah
4: the the two different drawing uh, two forms of drawing which which fails. She's not mentioned the passage, okay. and then of course the meaning of uh, Helucô being dragged there. So, yeah and end up being raised in the last day, so those would be my my main worries with it,
2: okay, so I'll, I'll leave it off at that and we can continue to the next section okay all right, good job guys it's a very very good discussion, definitely high level high level discussion here so uh let's go ahead and uh we'll move into a time of you guys um uh you one of you guys last uh question to another and uh, we'll take 10 minutes or so uh, just kind of discussing it. Uh, if, if it ends quicker than that, that's fine, and, and you guys can just kind of direct that and go on one to another. So uh, I guess, what, Nate, you want to let you go first here with uh, your first you question? You know,
4: I'm always forward. anxious. I'm always on the anxious bench here. Dad. I'm ready to, ready to fire away here.
0: So,
4: <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, okay, uh, Jordan. So
0: yep.
4: um, this is a question about events and your view of free will. So according to yep. – J.P. Moreland, the most widely accepted view of events is that an event is an instantiation of a property at a particular point uh, at, at, in time. And of William Lane Craig says, by event, I mean something that happens. Um, would you sure. agree with these construal of events?
7: Uh, that sounds reasonable, yeah.
4: Yeah, so it's an event is an instantiation of a property at a particular point in time. and an event, something that happens. You'd agree with that, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, Jordan, do you believe that when you choose to turn on your computer, that this itself would be an event? The choice itself is
7: an event, or the actually turning it on is an event?
4: Right. So you're making a choice to turn on the computer. So you are causing, you as an agent, you're causing an event. Is you causing an event itself an event? Yes. Okay. So the event of you causing an event, who causes that?
7: I do, the agent.
4: Okay, so so okay, here we go. I'm, let's, let's, we're going to use some high-level philosophical stuff here. So you're Don't an work. agent, okay? You're causing an event of you causing an event. So the you causing of an event of you causing an event is that an event? No. Okay, well that seems odd because you as an agent are are causing an event of you causing an event. So it seems like that this is something that happens, and so it qualifies as an event according to William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland. Not, so you're not exactly. Saying
7: yeah, the distinction here is that the actual event when the agent determines to do something is not distinct from the event that obtains. So it's uh, say, like say, you say said earlier. Again, it's, the, it's the uncaused cause, like you said earlier. There's nothing... Right, external right, right. To right agent. But, but
4: if, it, if, it's, if it's uncaused, then, of course, you do not cause you causing another event, because you would just cause the event. No, I just,
7: I do not cause myself to cause an event. I simply cause the event.
4: Okay, and that's an event, but does that event begin to exist?
7: Does it begin to exist? Yeah, once it's actualized.
4: All right, so it's something that begins to exist without a cause, right?
7: The cause is the agent, like I said.
4: Right, but the so, okay, let me, let me just throw my cards on the table here for you, okay? Go for it. I, um, I, I object to agent causation because it's metaphysically mm-hmm. impossible. Uh, that's a sacred no. creatures, I believe God has agent causal free will. Um, but it, the thought here is that an agent causing an event is itself an event. The question is, is that event caused or is it uncaused? Now, if it's caused by the agent, then the agent causing that event would have to be itself an event because you originally said an agent causing an event is also an event. So the thought here is that you end up with an infinite regress, which you don't believe you can, you know, have an actual infinite of infinite regresses, you know, through successive yeah, of that, that That would be absurd. Yes, and so my, my point here is this, this agent causal view, given this view of events, would end up um, either two things that are metaphysically impossible. Here's the dilemma. An event would come into existence without a cause, or there would be an infinite regress through successive addition, which would be absurd. And so this is why I would, you know, basically say that I would hold that the Arminian perspective is uh, not only um, theological problematic, but also metaphysically impossible. Uh, That's basically...
0: Can I
4: respond? Of course, yes. Okay, my
7: response would be, one, that's more just uh, simple and intuitive. That objection is too strong because it would equally apply to God. Uh, and uh, no, no, it wouldn't it, it,
4: in, just, 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 just so you don't waste your time here To understand exactly yeah. I hold the Craig's view of God in time So God would be in eternity And so he would be He would have, he would have an eternal event The event would be him causing or, or actualizing this world And that would be an eternal event Without a cause Because God's in eternity So it wouldn't apply to God In my view I'm not familiar with Craig Holding that event or that No, no My view of God in time So I can have a timeless event of God choosing to actualize and create this world, which never, n- never begins to exist, so I don't need to have a cause for it.
7: Uh, that's actually a mistake of timelessness. Once God actively begins to doing something, he brings about a change of affairs. So once that change of affairs occurs, that is an instantaneous event.
4: Oh Yes, the, the first end of a creation, but him choosing to create this world, the choice. So in, in action theory, you have choice and action. And the choice uh, does not issue in time, but the action does. That's that's the distinction. Choice is issue from action according to age, the standard view of agency. So, no, I mean, the a- action would cause the first event in time. The choice would be eternal. Uh, then it sounds like you're making a, a
7: temporal fallacy there. You're saying that the choice temporally... What is, w- what, is the action. what is a temporal fallacy? I'm just... I just kind of coined that term. the The idea I'm getting is that you're you're separating it in, in a temporal delay that first there is the choice, and then in a temporal sequence later, the action is tamed. But the proper way of understanding is that the act or the, uh, the will, the, ch- the choice is instantaneous with the act. They're not separated in any temporal sense. They're, there's a logical priority, but you can't separate the two.
4: Well, actually, in a, yeah, agent uh, theory, that's incorrect. There are uh, there is actually seconds or perhaps 0.5 seconds you know before you make a mental register you're going to make a decision and then you issue out an action. So
7: yeah, I do think that's very very different. You're referring to the the physical causations that follow from a choice. I'm referring to the choice that once all those causations begin, that instant that they all begin and go to that goal oriented
4: choice, that is when the choice is made. Oh, okay, so let me let me ask you a question to, under, to help you understand what you're saying. So are you saying that God didn't choose to create uh, this world from all eternity past? He didn't choose to create it? He, he, he made, he made he changed in eternity? He knew all he would create it. All of a sudden in eternity, in, a, he, he in, in eternity he chose? Because in eternity you can't really change. You can't, like all of a sudden, you know, you, you, you can't go from not choosing state. to choosing. In a timeless state there is no change, but that doesn't
7: mean it's impossible to change. The timeless state is saying that, uh, essentially it's saying no more than that, there are no non-unique states of affairs. There's just the God and nothing else state of affair. But once a new property is brought into the, the state of reality, so that you have the God and something else world, that's a change, and so there's no longer a timeless state, but God enters into time. He has experienced change.
4: Okay. Okay, um, right, but you would, say, you, so you would say God did not choose to create this world in eternity,
7: is that correct? He did choose to create it when he was in a timeless state, and the moment he made that choice, a change occurred. So that was a new Well, there, there,
4: there, there can't be moments in eternity, it would just be a, an eternal choice, and then in a moment he would, there would, ha- there would issue, an, issue an action. The timeless state is a single moment.
7: The moment following that is when time emerges. Because now we have a sequence of moments.
4: Right. The the it wouldn't actually wouldn't be a moment. It would just be just eternality. I don't know. Moments would be usually applied to temporal well, slices. But But uh, well, anyway, I I, I, would, I would I would. Go ahead. Uh, the
7: the calling it eternality is kind of ambiguous. the The point is that it's there is hey, no all, change all occurring All I mean by in that kind of is, of
4: the, is 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 you know events and states which are such that they lack any temporal succession at all. What I mean by that? So yes, I'll agree with that. Yeah. Um, so I'm saying that uh, we were talking about logic order here. God chooses in the order of logic, and then obviously he's made a choice about, you know, at a certain point he'll actualize this world, and then from that issues the action and then the first moment.
7: One minute, Nate. I, I didn't quite hear that last thing that Nate was saying.
4: Yes, the 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 first moment I would I would hold the, ch- the choice is eternal, but the action issues, and then that's the first moment of creation, the first temporal event of creation, and so this is this is the larger point I hold to is that I hold that it's an eternal event, um, God's choice, the God pos- God actualizing this world, choosing to actualize this world, is an eternal event, and so I would say that it's possible for God to have this sort of free will. But it's not possible for human beings to have a free will because it results in an event coming into existence, which everything that begins to exist has a cause. And then, of course, um, it would result in an infinite regress. Or it could result in determinism, which would be the cause of you causing, you know, to turn on your computer. That would be an event and that, that requires a cause and so on. So, okay. that's that's sort of the worry I have with all this. Do take I have a, time take to...
2: Okay. Yeah, yeah, take, take 30 seconds or so, Jordan, if you can, if that's Enough time And then go ahead And ask your question To Nate
7: Alright So here's here's what I see That you are making A mistake here In saying that the choice Is eternal God knew In the the timeless state In in the eternal path Whatever you want to call it So in the timeless state God knew What choice He would make But if he had Made that choice If he actually Made the choice Then that would have immediately brought about a change of affairs. To make the choice is to cause the event. And so if God had eternal in eternity past chose to create the universe, then the universe would be co eternal with God. And that's obviously false.
4: Okay, that's my objection. Okay. is uh,
2: I uh, it's just an nice ask question, or do I do I get to respond to that? Let's yeah, go ahead. Uh, it's up to you guys. Jordan, do you want to ask a question? Do you want to let him respond? I mean, what do you guys want to do? Uh,
7: I'm willing to move on and ask Emily a question, but if he's okay, really go ahead. adamant. All right, so this is going to take me a minute to set up. This is why I saved it. But do you mind
4: giving me a few minutes here? Uh, that's fine. Go ahead and ask a question, yeah. That, that'll be fine. Of course. Okay. Um,
7: so... Since we're talking about the, the freedom of the will in the, the response to divine grace I'd like to set up a, a problem of original sin that follows, that follows from any sort of uh, theology or philosophy that, that deals with determinism on the human will So that would include compatibilism That would include uh, every form of Calvinism Hyper-Calvinism, whatever So here's, here's the problem I'd like to, to set up So we have these desires so, what is the cause of these desires? Uh, I'm setting up the. I was happy there. So hold on. <laughs> so we have Did you want me this, to answer that? I'm, I'm setting up the the question right now. So this is okay. Don't don't respond just yet. I'll I'll let you know when I'm ready okay. for a response.
0: Okay.
4: All
7: right. So we, so we, the desire that is willed. Okay, that's the is causally determined by the greatest desire. This is dealing with a deterministic understanding of how desires lead to action. So. Of all the desires that a person has, the one that is greatest among them is the one that is acted upon. So that is the desire that is willed to happen. So that desire that's willed to happen is causally determined by the greatest desire. The greatest desire, in turn, is causally determined by whatever motivations or predispositions someone has. Those motivations, predispositions, whatever you want to call them, are causally determined by whatever man's state of nature is. Or by state of nature, I'm referring to, uh, in this example, Adam being in original righteousness. So that his nature was not, he did not have a sin nature. His nature was not corrupted. He did not have any natural predispositions to sin. So he was in a state of original righteousness. So his predispositions, his motivations, those things causing uh, the desires that he's going to act upon are determined by his state of nature. Mm -hmm. Now... If we say that man's state of nature Is causally determined by the desire that is willed Then we lead to circular reasoning Because then the desire that is willed is what? Caused by the greatest desire And the greatest desire turned by the motivations And those are in turn by the state of nature So we cannot say That Adam first willed to sin And thereby became sinful Or thereby obtained a sin nature Mm -hmm. We would have to say that his sin nature came about involuntarily. So, how can we explain that? There's two possible explanations. The first possible explanation is the, the hyper Calvinistic view, that, which is sometimes known as hard determinism or equal ultimacy, which is to say that uh, God is actively uh, in working these sinful desires and he is actively corrupting man's nature to make him sin. That's obviously false, I'll just throw that right out. But it's important to recognize that what's going on there is that once man's nature is uh, involuntarily made the way it is, Mm. we have God uh, committing an act of malice. And to clarify what I mean by malice, while grace is unmerited favor, malice is unmerited disfavor. So if you have an act of grace, that's to benefit someone without compulsion, duty, or obligation of debt. Mm. In turn, an act of malice is to harm someone without compulsion, duty, or obligation of debt. So for both grace and malice, there's no satisfaction of justice involved. There's no uh, nothing that the man's merited or deserving in this, but God just does it freely for, without any respect to the creature. So the second possibility we have, is that the generation of sinful desires do not begin until after God has removed or withheld that divine grace, which is both necessary and sufficient for man to be able to will and to do the good. So this is uh, the Orthodox doctrine of Calvinism. It's a direct result of uh, interpreting God's sovereignty over the human will through soft determinism, including compatibilism. But it leads, it's, morally indistinguishable from the first problem. And for the hyper-Calvinism, we recognize it's a heretical doctrine. And for the second one, it does not escape the same consequence. Here's why. Let me give you this analogy. So once I finish the analogy, I'll open it up for your response. Sounds good. so, So imagine a father holding his newborn child. The father, knowing the consequences of his actions, throws the child down upon the ground with lethal force. This father has acted with malice towards the child, and the child is is a passive victim of murder. Now consider a similar but different scenario. Imagine a father holding his newborn child. The father, knowing the consequences of his actions, simply removes or withholds his hands from holding the child, thereby directly causing the child to fall upon the ground with lethal force. This father is morally indistinguishable from the first. He has acted maliciously towards the child, who again is still a passive victim of murder. Now further imagine that after the child is splattered on the ground, the father with great wrath and indignation curses and rebukes the child for falling on the ground and perishing. In fact, the father even accuses the child of destroying herself and holds the child morally responsible for perishing. Now if to have a sin nature is to be fit for hell, then what we have here is God doing something that is involuntarily, that is without man's willful consent, without any desire in man to sin, God is doing something to make him worthy of just eternal punishment. But if this is an involuntary act of malice, then there's no sense in which justice is being Accomplished here. So, how can we understand that uh, the deterministic sense of uh, the original sin, how Adam came to sin, can escape God being malicious? That's your, okay, you know.
4: Okay, yeah. Um, well, first thing to note very carefully is that Calvinists, uh, classical Calvinists, deny there's grace prior to the fall. There is no sense in which grace exists prior to the fall. Grace is used after fallen creatures um, uh, have come to their sinful desires and they have uh, fallen already. So that would be grace is after the fall or ap- after the lapsarian, if you like. So um, grace in no way prior to the fall. So God's not giving someone grace. Uh, if he's, And God doesn't give somebody sufficient grace either because there's no sense in which there's grace prior to the fall. Uh, also, I want to point out something about the, uh, God's providence and sovereignty here, about Scripture, and then I'll provide a defense uh, from the problem of evil, which you've given a little microcosm of that from the Calvinist perspective. Oh. Jeremiah 10-23 says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. That is, it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. So, the way of man is not in himself. It's involved with God. And Ephesians one says, In him we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things out, all things, not some things, all things according to the counsel of his will. And then Proverbs 16:33. A lot is cast in the last, but every every decision is from the Lord. And so uh, it's clear the Bible teaches universal causal determination. And so here with Adam's first fall, that's what occurred. God uh, sufficiently caused Adam to uh, commit a sin. Now you would say, well, that's so evil. How could God do that? Well, God has a morally sufficient reason, such that if he did not cause Adam to sin freely, so I think he, I'm a compatibilist, so I think that God God made Adam originally righteous, and then eventually sufficiently caused him to perform a simple action freely, and so God did that for a greater good, such that if he had not caused Adam freely to perform that action, a greater good would not be accomplished. Um, And, you know, this is a fair game in philosophy. People are skeptical theists, and I lean toward skeptical theism. Um, That's a respectable philosophical position to hold. And so I would say here I would hold the skeptical uh, theist response in one hand and say that, yeah, he would have a morally sufficient reason for it, and he might might know what it is. I can go farther than that. I could even provide a defense as to why would God uh, sufficiently determine Adam freely to make that decision. Uh, he would do it to expose his grace, justice, righteousness, and hatred towards sin. God's the most perfect being. It's better for him to hate sin rather than not. And so he wants to manifest these uh, attributes in creation. These are infinite goods. And God will sacrifice a few finite goods for infinite goods. And so this is sort of a provisional... Calvinist defense, if you like, of uh, why the first sin occurred. And so, uh, God redeemed uh, Adam afterwards, and um, he had Adam impute, uh, or he had Adam's sin imputed to all individuals, which afterwards, they f- they freely performed sin in their sin natures, and God does that as an opportunity to show his love and grace, because it's much more uh, amazing to show your grace and love to someone who's fallen and dead in sin, and to show your, your love towards them, even though they are... Um, Uh, as I will talk about later on, heinous scorpions. Uh, They're evil. And so God shows his grace, his punishment of evil, and his domination over evil by allowing these things to happen. God shows his great attributes of justice, mercy, and righteousness, and, of course, most importantly, the cross of Christ. Uh, That's the most repugnant, heinous act in all history, Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross. And if any act is immoral, it's that one. But God had a morally sufficient reason for that act as well. And so uh, if God can have a morally sufficient reason for that, I take it it's not so irrational or ridiculous to think that God could have a morally sufficient reason for uh freely determining Adam to commit that first sin, so that He could have an opportunity to show His grace, justice, and mercy.
2: Okay, it's, it's actually been uh, it's been over ten minutes. Uh, just it's actually been twelve minutes because it took a while to set that question up. Uh, Nate, do you do you want to give him a chance to respond, or do you just want to go to your second question? I'll I'll leave that up to you.
4: Well, uh, we'll we'll make uh, fair as fair and go on to uh, my question. Okay, go for it. Okay, so, uh, Jordan, um, would you say uh, that it's improbable that God would have a morally sufficient reason for um, God determining Adam to sin? Let me
7: clarify a little bit. I do think God has morally sufficient reasons for... Permitting
4: Adam to sin
7: in a libertarian free will. No, no, I, I know, but, you know. I'm
4: talking about de- determining him. On my view, do you think it's? Do you think God can have a morally sufficient reason for determining him to sin? No. Okay, let me ask you a question. In Psalm 137:9, uh, it says, "Blessed shall God saying blessed to the ones who uh, dash babies against rocks." Do you think um, mm-hmm. God could have a morally sufficient reason for uh, saying blessed to people who dash babies' heads against rocks? Oh, I have not prepared that verse, but let me see if I can
7: call up on my memory. That one is a very interesting passage, and
4: it does not mean what it looks like it's saying. Uh, okay, well, if, if you don't think that's a legitimate passage, then we'll just go on then. I mean, it seems like it's saying, "Blessed shall he who takes your little ones and dashes them against rocks." But we'll go on. Um, okay. 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 Second Thessalonians 2:11 through 12. It says, "Therefore, God sends them strong delusions." So that they may believe what is false, in order that, okay. they, that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So here God sending people strong delusions and lies, so they can believe mm-hmm. that is what is false, so that God can later condemn them. Do you think God has a morally sufficient reason for that? If you're understanding strong delusion as irresistible delusion. It's that God sends them strong delusions. Uh, I mean, does it say that they can resist it in the passage? Well it doesn't say either. But what I would understand is like this. A strong delusion is a delusion that God knows will succeed in leading them astray. Okay. Okay, well if you take it that way, that's fine. Uh Genesis twenty two two says that basically God commanded uh Abraham to uh to kill his son, Isaac. Uh now God is perfectly holy and just and he commanded mm-hmm. Abraham to keep to kill his son. Do you think God has a morally sufficient reason for that?
7: And you brought up another very sophisticated passage. Uh, it's very interesting that God does not allow him to kill his son. Moreover, Abraham is in the very peculiar circumstance of being under the promise of God that through Isaac all the nations would be blessed. So as Paul quotes on or comments on this passage, that Abraham reasoned within himself that God is able to raise him from the dead. So if someone is raised from the dead, well, then what sense have you killed them? Uh, there's just no sense in which murder... Oh, can okay, I, I'm just talking him. about
4: the command, command itself. You think God has a morally sufficient reason for the command, yes or no?
7: Well, that was the morally sufficient reason for the command, because he's not actually calling him to murder unjustly or to kill unjustly. Okay,
4: so, so if I understand your position, God, has, uh, God can have morally sufficient reasons for commanding parents to kill their children, but he couldn't have a morally sufficient reason for causally sufficiently determining Adam to commit the first sin. Is that, is that your position? If that parent is Abraham
7: and under the promise of God to, well, that would essentially, if, if God had permitted Abraham to kill Isaac, he would have raised him from the dead. Parents who yeah, do not have, <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's a sense in which there can be exceptions to the general rule.
4: Okay, so that that's fair. First Kings twenty two nineteen to 23 says that uh, it's God in his holy courtroom and they have spirits all around and God tells the spirit to lie. Um, do you think God can have a morally sufficient reason for uh, telling someone to lie to somebody else? I think God can have a morally sufficient reason for letting liars lie. Yeah. No, no. For for telling in this passage, he actually tells him to lie. God tells him to lie. So in other words, just telling a liar to do what he does, go and lie. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. So do you so you think God can but have he, a morally sufficient re, sufficient reason for telling a spirit to go lie to somebody? but he couldn't have a morally sufficient reason for causally determining Adam to commit his first sin. Well, again,
7: I'm saying I can understand how God can be justified in, in morally justified in giving the command, but I would not say that in a deterministic sense, no.
4: Okay, no, that's fine. Um, now, the most heinous act in all of human history, Jesus Christ uh, being uh, murdered and the wrath of God being, a, being upon him, um, in Acts four twenty-six to 28 It says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered against the Lord and against the anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentile people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Acts Mm -hmm. 2.23 confirms this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So here we have God determining people to, to perform the most heinous acts, of all human history, uh, murder the Lord Jesus, and God puts his wrath upon him, uh, as it teaches in Romans 3 and 1 John. Um, do you think God has a morally sufficient reason for this, for for murdering someone who's perfect and uh, predestining that event, so the, the murder of his son who's perfect, and then cast giving him hell in the place of sinners when he had done nothing wrong? Do you think God has a morally sufficient reason for that?
7: Well, the thing that has to be remembered is that to predetermine or to predestine is not synonymous with determinism, so I'm going to say, yeah, God can predetermine these things. He can arrange all the states of affairs to bring about these events, but to causally determine the people to do these things, I don't think that qualifies as a just act of God or a righteous act
4: okay, but, but of course god um God having pouring out his wrath on his son, you don't you think he had a morally sufficient reason for that? If the Son voluntarily took upon himself the wages of sin in our behalf, then yes. Okay. And do you think the crucifixion is the most heinous act in all of human history? Physically, no. As a matter of uh, imputation, yes. Okay, so yeah, it, it is it, all together then. What about that? It, would it be the most heinous act in uh, human history?
0: Yeah.
7: Because uh, essentially it's, it's uh, the the embodiment of man's hatred against God, man's rebellion against God. So, yes.
4: Okay. Um, and uh, that God has a morally sufficient reason for that, right?
7: If understood in the way that I would say so. In the causal determinism, okay. no.
4: But, but God couldn't... Oh, By the way, just so you know, in the Greek, uh, for predestine it says, decide from the beginning or beforehand, predestined, set apart from the beginning or beforehand. So, it sounds like God yeah. is deciding this from, from the beginning. So... Correct. How can you say that? I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. How can you say that it's not, uh, it's not, it's not referring to predestination when it's God deciding these things in the very oh, beginning? Oh, I'm saying and It, it am wouldn't would be against the trying. counterfactuals of freedom because He doesn't decide those. Now He decides to, you know, obviously use them, but He doesn't decide how they turn out. God kind of gets lucky as to how they turn out, depending on how they turn out. But needless to say, yeah. So He doesn't decide that. Um, so, but it's saying that he decides the death of his son, and him experiencing wrath, and the Greek word for predestination.
7: That you brought up some good points that were actually mistakes. Um, okay, so God does not cause creaturely counterfactuals to be true.
4: I I, I didn't uh, say that by okay. the way.
7: That I've, I, I, never I, I know. I know. That. I'm I'm just I'm just responding. So it's
0: so there oh, is yes okay, yep,
7: that that the the truth of these creaturely counterfactuals are independent of God's will in the same sense that mathematical truths are independent of God's will. But the actualizing of these creaturely counterfactuals to make them facts, those are dependent upon God's will. That's in his free knowledge. So that God doesn't get lucky. he He is deciding beforehand. He's deciding, I want these states of affairs to obtain these states of affairs in which these people would do these things. And so everything is being decided by God, including what sinners do, including the crucifixion, including all of it.
4: So Uh, God is doing... No, no, can I I ask you some questions to clarify some things you said really quick? Go for it. Yeah, so God doesn't have control over these kind of factuals of freedom, right?
7: Before he actualizes them, yes. He, he has perfect, perfect control he, he over them. Yeah, that,
4: that's, that's why that's what I was asking. So if yeah. the counterfactuals of freedom end up to where everybody in most circumstances are going to hell, and God is really unlucky here, and if the counterfactuals of freedom end up to where everybody is going to heaven, then God is extremely lucky here, right? Uh, in what sense would he be lucky? Well, because he did not have control over them. So in every, everybody in most circumstances, say say all the counterfactuals of freedom ended up to be such that that you know they all chose to all do the right thing and God can actualize the world like that. Then God would be okay. extremely lucky. Now suppose, and even Craig, I recall his lectures on this, uh, he, that God, that he, he gives a Calvinist alternative by saying, well, if the counterfactuals of freedom ended up to be so horrendous. This is his lecture set on philosophy of religion, by the way. Um, you can get it through his website. If they were so horrendous, then God could then choose to causally determine everybody in a Calvinist way because, the counterfactual of free will ended up being so bad that no one really chose to believe in Christ. So it seems like then what I'm trying to say is that the counterfactual of freedom God doesn't have control over. So if they end up to be all good, everybody's going to heaven or everybody chooses to do the right thing, God seems very lucky indeed. And if they don't, well, then God seems very unlucky indeed in that sense, how they turn out. I'm not familiar with the the context of Craig's statement, but to be lucky... he, He was offering how... Calvinist can be Molinist in that that context. To be,
7: to be uh, well, fair. I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into that, but I'll just say that uh, Molinism or middle knowledge is not compatible with Calvinism, and there are um, I believe the guy's name is John Lang has written a nice little article, short summary. But okay, uh, to be lucky, you're implying that there's an unintended but desired consequence that's coming about, and that is false. Everything that obtains in the world via God's middle knowledge is intended. There's no mistakes. There's no. There's not. They're not just simply being desired consequences. They are. They're fully intended. There's not nothing lucky about them. Now, if you want to say, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm using
4: lucky. We're using different words here. I'm using lucky in the sense that um, something you lack control over ends up uh, going well in your direction. I would. I mean, people usually that, Oh, you got very lucky there. You know, you lack control over that. You had no causal control over it and it ends up being in, in your, you know, kind of in your favor. Would be how yeah. I'm using lucky. So in that sense, I would say it's lucky. I might
2: even hey, hey know the guy who hey, hey, Yes. Hey, I was, I was going to let you know. It's funny. I have my my thing on mute. I've been over here saying, "Hey guys, hey guys." <laughs> <I was supposed laughs> that, uh, yeah, the ten minutes is up, Jordan. It's up to you if you want to continue the discussion or if you want to go on to your question. Oh, uh, uh, I, uh do. Devin,
4: don't we have only five minutes left for uh, the closing statements? I understand the time. Uh, Two hours, right?
2: Yeah, I think the well, I think the timing got, got messed up. Um, how many questions did you ask Nate? Oh, that's right. He
4: didn't get to ask me a, another question. That's right. Yeah, so yeah, of have these, him. These. Yeah, you know, have him ask it, and we'll try to do a quick closing statements. I guess.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Jordan, go go ahead and and. Um, and I hate to do it, but can you take like maybe eight minutes to do your question to him, and then i will give you guys a minute or two to try and wrap it up. Just the the whole time thing got messed up
0: tonight.
7: No, it's it's all right. Uh, actually, let me return to the questions I was or the responses I was going to give for Nate's previous question. Now, he responded to my problem of original sin by saying that prior to the fall. There is no grace. Grace does not exist, much less sufficient grace. Now, that is just false. Uh, what's being confused here is mercy. Mercy is grace that is given to someone who deserves judgment, someone who deserves wrath. Now, there's no mercy prior to the fall. But grace would include everything from man's mere existence to everything, every good thing he has in the world. Those are all unmerited benefits that God is giving to man. Likewise, man's original state of nature in uprightness, without corruption, without a sin nature, that is a state of grace. So it's just wrong to say that man is, not, is without grace prior to the fall. Uh, do you have any response to that?
4: Oh, I do, yeah. Majority of Reformed theologians uh, reject that for two reasons. Um, One, because God would be gracious to Jesus, but there's a legal sort of relationship of merit between Christ. Christ merits our salvation. And so God's not gracious towards him in any way. So you end up collapsing grace um, to make the Christ's act of obedience following the law in our place, which is taught in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And uh, this uh, law and this grace category is taught in Romans 4, 1 through 4. And so in Scripture consistently we see that grace is applied after the fall, after the fall. There's no single instance in Scripture where grace is applied prior to the fall. And so, uh, Jordan, you may think I'm mistaken about this, but there's no biblical or, I would say, good theological or philosophical reasons for thinking this. God made um, the creation out of his, his will, and I would say those uh, categories of uh, grace and unmerited, or I would say in the New Testament, demerited favor, which is, I think, the proper gloss of that term, was only applied um, after the fall, and is, I think, theologically inappropriate uh, to be applied prior to the fall with the majority of Reformed theologians on that. So re- the Reformed Calvinistic system consistently rejects that position that grace is prior to the fall. Um, that's a Roman okay. Catholic position. Okay, and the, uh, the second point you had brought up, kind of tying into the third, there is the morally sufficient
7: reasons, but you, the morally sufficient reasons, the, the framework that you put that behind is utilitarianism. That's no, that's God's,
2: false. That's false. Well,
7: let me hold on. The the morally the reason God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil and for permitting uh, sin, is because of the greater good that would result sin. No, that's not it.
0: Sin.
4: No, that's not my position. Okay. So what makes it, uh, you, consequentialism utilitarianism is what makes an action right or wrong is the consequences it produces. That's standard vanilla consequentialism, utilitarianism. Okay. But what I hold is that the intention that God has for the greater good and the consequences, is the right-making thing. That's what makes a divine action right or wrong, is that God's intention is to bring about the greatest good, and it, in fact, accomplishes the greatest good. So it's not just based and loaded on the consequences, but the intentionality of the good divine intent. So that's not consequential enough.
7: Okay, that's a good clarification, because the way you had originally presented is that you only stressed the the consequences that would result, and so you're lacking a, a full virtue theory. Okay. I'll leave it at that. Yeah,
4: I actually I, I do hold that God is uh, I do hold that that uh, the virtue theory applies to God in some sense and I hold that I, I do I'm a eudaimonist so I do hold to that. So I mean but that's another issue. But yeah, I, I just think that God God follows uh his holy will in producing his uh his his greater glory and we, we partake in that by enjoying him forever and he has self glorification, enjoying himself and that's what I would hold basically. But anyways, but that's another issue.
7: Okay, good deal. Um, I'll leave it at that. Do you have any further
4: questions? No, I do not. Thank you. Thank you. Uh,
2: um Nate, go ahead and take uh, the three minutes work for you.
4: Okay, great. I-, I want to begin my closing statement with a parable of the ungrateful scorpion. A parable uh, has been told about an old man who meditated each day by a river in India. One morning he saw a scorpion. Floating on the water, and when the scorpion drifted near the old man, he reached to rescue it, but was stung by the scorpion. A bit later, he tried again and was stung. The stings caused his hands to swell and throb with pain. Uh, Another man passed by and saw what was happening, and yelled at the mediator, Hey, stupid old man, what's wrong with you? Only a fool would risk his life for the sake of an ugly, evil creature. Don't you know you could kill yourself trying to save an ungrateful scorpion? The old man calmly replied, My friend, just because it is a scorpion's nature to sting does not change my nature to save. Friends, the God, this is the God of Calvinism. He loves us even while we are evil, despicable scorpions, une- unable even to love him, and we can't change the sapphire scorpions, but he can. And this is the irresistible grace of Calvinism. Truly, this is amazing grace. This is the incomprehensible love of God taught in the Bible, and anything which contradicts this beauty of divine love is to be rejected. And I, uh, I would say that the God I serve, you know, he accomplishes salvation when we are with mere scorpions and filthy wretches. As Romans 4.5 says, the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, we are ungodly when we're justified. His faith is counted as righteousness. And so I would say that Calvinism is a position which maintains God's amazing grace. God will drag us to salvation, to and screaming while we're scorpions, because that's how amazing his love is. He loves us so much that even while we hate him, he uh, he will draw us and he will, uh, he will accomplish this. And this is reflected in John 6.44, which I don't believe has been responded to adequately. The dragging, it's more reasonable than not to hold that interpretation. Romans 9 has not been accounted for in an intuitively plausible way, rendering the text. And I don't believe that 1 John 5 has been understood and the Greek text has been adequately dealt with here. And, uh, but I, you know, that would be another Greek subject, uh, for, for people to talk about. But I, I do believe that the Greek teaches that, and I think you'll find in your standard Greek volume that that confirms that. And even, um, Marshall and Arminian hold the majority of those perfect, uh, forms are in reference to a prior completed, completed state. So that concludes my, uh, uh, ending statement. And I want to pro- uh, give thanks to Jordan for his grace towards me and this discussion. and I've appreciated it a great deal. Thank you. All right,
2: Jordan. Let's go ahead. And take a, take a few minutes. Okay. Uh, for my closing statement, I'll just say, uh,
7: yeah, thank you as well, Nathan. It's it's been enjoyable, and it's always nice when uh, when I actually have people responding with arguments and not just strings of claims.
0: <laughs> so, oh.
7: Yeah. <laughs> Hold on. So for the uh, so the Armenian view, okay. Now I didn't address this during the debate just because of time constraints and I, I yeah with the time that uh, kind of messed up I don't have all my notes with me but the uh for Judaism if you go back to the the Old Testament era for the Jews the the notion of human freedom that I'm endorsing the, the libertarian sense of notion is axiomatic for the Jews they understood all the Old Testament passages was endorsing this view Likewise, for the first four centuries, for the first from so the the close of the the canon to pre-Augustine, all of that time, all of the church fathers, the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers, all of the material evidence we have, they're all supporting the human sense or the human freedom that I'm also endorsing. It's not until Augustine that we get a deterministic sense of human freedom coming onto the scene into orthodoxy. Uh, So I'd I'd encourage the readers to go and look those things up. Uh, Google the early church fathers on human free will, likewise with uh, Jewish theology. So if all of those native Greek speakers who are uh, in the Christian culture, they're in the right context, they're in the first century, the the apostolic fathers are relating to uh, some of the apostles and the New Testament writers, and they all understand these passages as referring to a libertarian sense of human freedom then I would say that's a much stronger probability than the other that Nathan is uh, endorsing. Uh, likewise, for the the problem of the original sin, this is not something that can be escaped. It's righteousness. All of human righteousness depends upon the goodwill of God towards man. It is impossible for man to think, to will, to act, to do anything that's right, anything that's good, anything that's pleasing to God, unless God is sustaining him and supporting him. With some unmerited favor, God does not do this out of obligation, of debt. There's no sense of justice being fulfilled. It's all grace, 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 grace. And so, any time we have a notion of freedom or free will, that leads to when God does something, that all we can understand is that it's an act of malice, the removal of such grace, that the removal of the such grace. Leads to a sin nature, it causes man to have a sin nature involuntarily without any consent of the will, without any prior desires, then man is not the one bringing about his sin nature. God is doing that. So that is just an unacceptable. I'm sorry, am I running out of time?
2: Yep, you are out of time, my friend. Uh, We are actually both out. We're all out of time. Okay, I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Devin. I I appreciate
4: it. God bless you guys.
2: Yeah, thanks, man. I want to want thank both of you guys for coming, and uh, great discussion. The podcast will be up right after the this episode goes off, and uh, maybe have you guys back on again and uh, explore a little further. So, Jordan, thanks for your time, preparing, and coming oh, thank on. You. Nate, as always, appreciate thank you. you too, my friend. Thank you, Jordan. And yep.
4: Thank you, Nathan.
2: All right, guys. No I bless you guys. Have a good night. You too, and we will uh, be back next week with another episode of uh, Theology Matters. God bless.
1: Yeah. Mic check. Mic check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. You know what saying? Right up. That biblical, biblical biblical theology theology, study the person of God attributes. Yeah. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, tropic. and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh-huh. They say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be it. enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays His majesty. Or it's a travesty. Or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church.